open with a word of prayer. Almighty God, how incredibly vast and awesome you are. Lord, we can see your power and your might in the universe. And Heavenly Father, we are so incredibly insignificant before what we see and how much smaller we must be before you because you are so vast in comparison to the heavens. Lord, somehow we are showered with your love and your kindness and your generosity and your grace. And we are so undeserving. We know that even the greatest of these things that we can imagine coming from you are truly just figments of how great you really are. How amazing and grand and how deep the mystery between you and us. Lord, we look to your Son. He was our model of how we are to live, of how Jesus cares for his church. Lord, how awesome is Jesus. We are so lost without you. Our sin and our failure, they are tied around us as we are trying to swim against the tide. And we fail to look to you, Lord. Heavenly Father, come down this morning and be with us. Remind us. Give us grace and understanding. Let us not follow after our own hearts, but to you and to you only would we open our hearts and our minds. Heavenly Father, give us wisdom to heed the words of your prophet Isaiah and to understand and to see Jesus. Give us that discernment, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I talk about how great the universe is. Sometimes I'm amazed at how small it is, too. Long, complicated story. I'll try and make it short. A friend of mine in high school, we met my junior year. Here in the United States, we would say my junior year. Um, I was going to school in Australia. And this guy was an American, and he lived about a block away behind our house, and uh, his name is Mike Berger. Mike was the same age I am, just a couple of days older. We were in this, many of the same classes, and he chose not to go through the rigorous matriculation series that I did. So we ended up in different math classes and different physics classes, and we still hung out together. He was learning how to fly airplanes, and I was flying sailplanes. It was really kind of cool. As far as I know, we were the, there were three of us in high school that were flying aircraft. And um, that was two of the three of us. The third guy was my other best friend, who was the pastor's son, Tim Parrish. So 
So Mike and I, of course, after we left Australia, no communication. And uh, so I have a Facebook account and I post occasionally. And it was about 10 years after I had been, you know, occasionally putting stuff on, on Facebook. And all of a sudden there's this friend request from a guy named Mike Berger. His call sign is Slider, right? Sliders are those little tiny hamburgers. And, and, and so this is, this is a joke that pilots, you know, play on each other. Because Mike is not a small guy. He's pretty, he's pretty buff. And uh, so uh, sure enough, it's Mike Berger, my buddy from high school. And he is an airline captain for Southwest. And um, so he and I pass stuff back and forth. And, and uh, he lives in Phoenix. Sorry, um, it was Texas somewhere. Um, and he has a friend who is also an airline captain. Her name is Julie J. Julie has a daughter who was trying to figure out where to go to school and would I talk to her daughter about, you know, internships and, and getting through school and selecting a major. And so I, I talked to the young lady and uh, um, scary smart kid um, and uh, going to a school that I could never get into, of course, you know, because her mom's an airline captain. <laughs> and um, everybody assumes I'm like really super smart because I work for NASA, which is far from the truth. Um, I knew some scary smart people at NASA. I am not one of those people. Um, but uh, along the way, one of our pilots that we had there, a guy named Manti, Manny Adamaceras, he's the guy who flies Sophia, the 747 with the telescope in it. That was his primary job for us. So he leaves. Um, there was a change in management in this. He, was not particularly pleased with what was going on. He left. And it turns out he's taken a job as an airline captain on Southwest Airlines. So um, like Thursday of this week, just a couple of days ago, I sent a message to Mike and to Julie, you know, my two Southwest Airline captain friends. I said, hey, if you ever run into Manny Adamaceras, you know, say hi to him for me, because he and I were kind of good friends at NASA. And like 10 minutes later, my phone dings, you know, and I pull it out and I look at it, and there's a picture of Julie sitting on the flight deck, and beside her in the co-pilot seat is Manny. She said, this happened last night. That's how small aerospace is, you know, that, that it, you're connected with people in, in just ways you can't even imagine. So I, I'm amazed at how vast the universe is at the same time being amazed at how small it is sometimes. I won't tell you the story of another time where I ran into a buddy I was in an international airport in um, Fiji on a layover 
and there was a guy from the class behind me in high school, another friend, was there having a layover going the different direction. And we're at, in, we're at an international airport, thousands of miles from here, thousands of miles from where we met. And here we are, Calvin Ledbetter. The next time I saw him, by the way, we were both standing in the line to Pirates of the Caribbean down at Disneyland. Just random stuff that just completely happens to you because God happens to set it up so that your paths will cross at those moments and at those times. So we are at the end of chapter 39. I left you guys hanging, right? We didn't make it all the way through 39. And I'm actually going to violate one of my own personal rules. And I'm going to do this to you guys today simply because chapter 40 is like a super long chapter and chapter 39 is eight verses, all right? So we're going to do the eight verses and close out 39. Well, what you don't realize is everything we've done in Isaiah up until now ends at the end of chapter 39. The end of chapter 39 is the end of this section in Isaiah. Chapter 40 is written apparently many, many, many years later, maybe 20 years later in Isaiah's life. And he sits down and he starts writing again. And 40 is a whole new thought that he has. A whole new message that God has given him to give us. All right? So we're going to finish up on 39, which is King Hezekiah. And remember, Hezekiah is like one of the good guys. And we're supposed to look at Hezekiah not as a good example. And we're going to talk a little bit about that here. And uh, 39 is the end of this prose section. And then that's the end of Isaiah's story of King Hezekiah. And the whole thing with the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And they, There's a little bit about that later on. We'll talk about that when we get there. That's the third section in Isaiah. But this middle section is incredibly important because this is the most quoted section out of the Old Testament that is in the New Testament. And as soon as we get into this, it will immediately become apparent to every single one of you how incredibly important this piece of Isaiah is. And actually, Isaiah, like, opens the door on this, and you'll see that today. So we're going to just start chapter 40, because 40 is long, and um, we're going to do the eight verses out of that. Okay. Chapter 40, by the way, Isaiah bursts out in song to comfort the people of God and to sing of God's word, which stands forever. Chapter 40, I already mentioned, comes sometime after 39. Next week we will finish chapter 40 with Isaiah singing of the greatness of God. And that's all we're going to look at is this one section that's in chapter, chapter 40. And um, so with all that in mind, once again I'm going to remind you, recall that Hezekiah is one of the good guys, all right? But here he fails God and he fails God's people. Okay, with that as the background, let's go ahead and start. So verse 1, 
envoys come from Babylon. Sorry, verse 39. This is, this is, um, this is not 39. This is chapter 39, verse 1. Okay, we are in the right place. 39, verse 1. At that time, Merodach-Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to King Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and had recovered. So think about this for a minute. So we believe this happened sometime after the illness of Hezekiah. The king of Babylon, Merodach Baladan, by the way, other texts list his name as Marduk Apla Edina II. And he ruled Babylon from 722 BC to 710 BC. Now, this is fascinating. In 710 BC, he was defeated by deceit by the Assyrians, King Sargon II. We've talked a lot about him, all right? So the Babylonians are being a pain in the neck to the Assyrians. Judah is being a pain in the neck to the Assyrians on the other side of their empire. So you have these two extreme ends that are maybe a thousand miles or 1200 miles apart that are being a pain in the neck to the Assyrians. And the Assyrians are not taking this light laying down, okay? So, now stop and think of this in terms of modern political theory, right? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. So the Babylonian king is thinking, hey, Judah must be my friend. And so he sends this gift to Hezekiah. But at the same time, there's some deceit on the part of the Babylonians. And you'll see what happens here. Okay. This is slightly like our relationship with Russia and China, right? We are... Russia and China hate each other. You're, you're aware of this, okay? I mean, neither one of them are our friends. But we're not exactly, you know, that doesn't mean they're friends with each other. So there's this weird three-way tug-of-war that's going on that, between us and, and the, the Russians and the Chinese. Well, the same thing here with Babylon, Judah, and Assyria. All right. Verse 2, Hezekiah blows it right here. Hezekiah receives the envoys from Babylon, and he, this is what he says. Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, and all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all of his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. So he receives the envoys from Babylon, like they're good buddies. And he displays for them all the wealth and the military defenses of Judah. Hezekiah, being flattered by the Babylonians, wishes to prove his might, his brilliance, and his strength. Hezekiah falls for the flattery of words and falls due to his own pride. 
Hezekiah displays everything for the Babylonians to see. And it should be noted, by the way, Judah was an incredibly rich country, especially so for its small, modest size. God had been very generous to the kingdom of Judah. And Hezekiah makes the mistake of believing that all of this is his. And he's trying to prove to the Babylonians how great he is as a king. So verses 3 and 4. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What do these men say, and where did they come from? And Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. Come to me, right? They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. And Isaiah said, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answers, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. I mean, Hezekiah at this point, I mean, he's being incredibly dumb. And he, he's actually proud of the fact that he did this. He's trying to impress Isaiah by saying this stuff. And you know what Isaiah is thinking here. Okay. Isaiah pronounces the penalty for Hezekiah's sin here. And, and Isaiah is asking, what's going on? And Hezekiah continues to blunder on, oblivious to his own pride and the grievous sin that he is committing. And Isaiah continues to try and find the depth of the error, and Hezekiah displays that his failure is complete. Hezekiah is trying to make a deal with Babylon as a hedge against Assyria. Instead, Hezekiah should have brought his worldly cares before God, but this is not what Hezekiah does. So verses 5 and 6. Then Isaiah says to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, which your fathers have stored up till this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. This is Isaiah pronouncing the penalty for Hezekiah's sin. That the entire nation shall someday suffer at the hands of the Babylonians. And Babylon shall carry off all the wealth that belongs to the nation and all of the people of Judah. Verse 7, Isaiah continues, And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Because of Hezekiah's sin, his family, his own sons, and their families will suffer at the hands of the Babylonians. Isaiah is pronouncing judgment. At the same time, he is prophesying of the future. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if I had ever made an error so large that it would cost my children throughout their entire lives, that would be truly an utter disaster for me. I cannot imagine such a, such a thing. I am trying to figure out how to benefit my kids and their kids to the greatest extent that I am able. 
I've been studying the, the inheritance laws in the United States to figure out how I can give my granddaughter the most money I can. I can only view this as a tremendous burden Hezekiah is inflicting on his own family. And I can't imagine that. And this whole section, everything that we've done up through now, chapter 1 all the way through chapter 39, closes with verse 8 here. And this tells you what sort of idiot Hezekiah is. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord you have spoken is good. For he thought, There will be peace and security in my days. He has no sense of the legacy that he is leaving to all of God's people, to his own family, and the disaster that will befall them. This is the most depressing response. Hey, it's all good for me. Right? Isaiah 48:22. Isaiah 48:22 There is no peace says the Lord for the wicked. And Hezekiah truly is wicked by what he does here at this point. Isaiah 57:21 Isaiah 57:21 There is no peace says my God for the wicked. It's been repeated. Eventually, peace shall return to Jerusalem, and God's peace shall come to God's people. So this is Isaiah 66, 12 to 13. Isaiah 66, 12 to 13. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip, and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. And when it says here Jerusalem, that's, not, that's both literally the city of Jerusalem, but that means also all of God's people. And this concludes the first section of Isaiah. It's the end of this prose section. Hezekiah is regarded as one of the good kings of, of Judah. So here, clearly, is a very negative message. Everything up to here has been in historical context and prelude. And this has been heavy on the judgment of God through the persecution of the Assyrians against Judah. We've already mentioned, this next section comes sometime later. At the opening of chapter 40, Isaiah opens in song. And this section extends from Isaiah 40 through Isaiah 55. And Isaiah sings of comfort for God's people. This was written... Sorry. This is mostly written for the future exiles of Judah in Babylon. Isaiah prophesies of Judah's deliverance from Babylon and their return to Jerusalem. But buried in here, you're going to see multiple times, is Jesus and his suffering and 
his propitiation of our sins. Jesus pays for our sins. You will see that here in Isaiah. Israel returns to the land that God promises them, and their ultimate salvation comes along with that. The immediate prophecy of God and the deeper meaning of the coming of the Messiah are intermixed. It's almost like an abstract piece of art where you have to stand back and look at it in order to understand what's going on. You have to see the deeper meaning. And that greater image can only be seen from a distance. God is the master artist painting this picture for us to have. I'm sure Isaiah may or may not have had that understanding at that time. It's not clear. But we can see it from our standpoint incredibly clear as to who Isaiah is talking about. So, I want to open verse 40, I mean chapter, uh, chapter 40, with just a few verses. This is the opening of the second section of Isaiah. Listen here to what Isaiah says, starting in chapter 40. So chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. Comfort for God's people. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The repeat of the word comfort here is for emphasis. And my people signifies God has not rejected them, that they remain God's people despite the judgment pronounced on them. They have been selected by God, chosen by God for God's purposes. Isaiah is told to comfort the children of Israel. And God signifies here that their iniquity has been pardoned and that that punishment is now complete. Verses 3 and 4. In the wilderness, a voice, sorry, a voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Have you heard this, verse 3, before? Let me give you some quotes. Matthew 3, 1 through 3. John the Baptist prepares the way. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Mark 1, 2 and 3. Mark 1, 2 and 3. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Luke 1, 76, and chapter 3, verse 4. So, Luke 1, 76. 
And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. This is to John the Baptist. And then later in Luke, Luke 3, verse 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The only one left is John. John 1, 23. John 1, 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now I want you to stop and think about this. And, and there are only a handful of places in the Bible where all four Gospels make reference to something, to a single thing out of the Old Testament. Because it's not very important. It doesn't want to be emphasized, right? Four times in a row. God is trying to tell you something when he tells you the same thing four times in a row. This verse out of Isaiah is so important that all four gospel accounts mention it. God is emphasizing this verse to us for a reason. Going back to Isaiah 40, verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God's glory is revealed in redemption from Babylon, but also in all nations, seeing deliverance, and ultimately that deliverance is Jesus coming to pay redemption for all. And finally, on that last day, the day of the Lord, when Jesus returns, all flesh will see it together on that day. That's how incredibly important this passage is. Verse 6. The word of God stands forever. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? And God tells him, all flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. A voice tells Isaiah to cry out. And Isaiah asks, what shall I cry? And God's reply is, all flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. Truly, beauty is so much like the flowers of the field. Marvelous to behold and remarkable to witness. And yet, it is so fleeting and fragile and lasting but a moment. Continuing on, verse 7. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. 
Isaiah understands the metaphor here. We see the grass wither away every year, especially here in this valley. Spring rains, remember those? Bring the grass and the flowers in the fields. It was only two years ago we had incredible poppies out on the west end of the valley. But the fragility of both of those quickly pass. By late summer, the fields are brown. And Isaiah explains that the grass is a metaphor for the people. Friends, our time is short here on this earth. We do not have as much time as we thought. We are being admonished to spend our time wisely. Verse 8, and I'm going to close with verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And even though we age and fade, as all of the universe does, the promises of God stand forever. We say firm as a rock, yet the rock really truly is a poor metaphor. The rock fades also, just as the mountains wash to the sea. But God is completely immutable, and his promise is solid in ways that nothing in the universe, nothing that exists materially does. God is immutable, but his promise is solid more solid than anything in the universe itself. We have no metaphor for God that perfectly fits the unsurpassing strength and durability of God and of his word, his promises to us. This ends our passage today, and I'm going to leave you hanging. I know some of you have read ahead, and you already know what's coming next. There is much pain and suffering getting to this point. God's people do not have an easy life, not for the Judeans and not for us. But now we hear of God's promise in the end. When you stand back, can you see those glimpses of the bigger picture here? God is the master painter. Isaiah is just the brush, putting the paint on the page. Can you see what he's saying? Can you see what God is doing? Can you see the imprint of Jesus? Jesus is waiting above all to save God's people. And all of this is in Isaiah's words. What God has planned is greater than anything we can imagine. Are we seeing and hearing a new God's calling to us? This morning I remembered, by the way, when my feet hit the ground. As I'm walking around, stumbling around in the dark looking for the light switch, I'm praying to God. I remembered this morning. 
Isaiah is pointing us back towards God. He's telling us to look to Jesus. Look to God's salvation. Isaiah is telling us we need to change the way we live. I spent a lot of time yesterday. Let me back up even a bit more. Friday. Friday was our wedding anniversary. September 10th. Leanne and I have often commented to each other that we are so glad that our wedding was not on September 11th. It was a good anniversary. Um, we found out on our evening walk, we ran into someone, and um, they mentioned that one of our neighbors runs a food truck. Really? We didn't know that. It turns out the dad was a chef, Italian chef. He's Hispanic, but, and so we found out where their food truck was on Friday night. And so we went and had Italian that night. And it was really good. In fact, we're going to try and figure out where they're at tonight again. <laughs> and these are neighbors of ours. They're, they're, you know, they live like four, down, four doors down our street from us. And we had no idea. It was awesome. But I spent a lot of time yesterday watching the 9-11 specials. I remember that morning. I got up in the morning and I ate my cereal. I showered and shaved and got dressed and then I came out and ate my cereal and I sat down and I turned on the news. I always watch the news in the morning. I'm watching the Dow Jones, you know, for my retirement fund. and All of a sudden they cut away. It's the talking heads were talking about something insignificant. And all of a sudden one of them said, we have a breaking story. And they immediately went to the first tower burning. And I'm sitting there with my half a bowl of cereal watching what's going on, waiting for my carpool, right? And I realize I need to get ready, but this is obviously something's going on. And then I'm watching live as the second aircraft hits the second tower. And so I called my carpool up. I said, are we going in? Have you guys heard anything? Because I, I hadn't heard anything. And uh, everybody said, no, I, I haven't heard anything. So we got in our car and we went to work. And to be quite serious, I expected the Air Force to say, you guys aren't getting on. No civilians today. Everybody turn around and go home. There was, it, was, it was surreal. They just waved us through the gate, just like normal. And I, I got to work and went down and talked to my boss. What's going on? Are we sending people home? or Because I was a brand new supervisor at this time. I'd been a supervisor for about two months. What do we do? I, you know, what do I do? What do I tell people? There was nothing. The silence was deafening. And we heard about the Pentagon 
and Flight 93 in Pennsylvania. And I got home and watched it all over again that night. 9-11 is always a, a very difficult day because I don't know what to do about that. It's, it's difficult. And I pray about it. It's really hard. Leanne doesn't know what to do with me on 9-11 either. God has a purpose for us, for the way things are in the universe. I think about what happened to Isaiah, the chaos of his world, and the faith that God gave to Isaiah and how Isaiah displays his whole to the anchor who is our God. And how this serves God's righteousness. Ultimately, all of this that we're living through serves God's greatness also. And God's greatness will be there for all to see on the day of the Lord. And we will all witness his greatness and splendor on that day. Let's pray. Almighty God, how great you are. How awesome is your plan. And how so insignificant are all of us. Lord, you are faithful and you are just and you are gracious. You've kept your words spoken by Isaiah for all these years and handed them down generation to generation just so that we could have these words. Down through the ages, you have given the, these words to us. Heavenly Father, we have been unfaithful. We keep trying to save ourselves. We look to Babylon trying to make the deal. We look to the world. And you want us to hear you in Isaiah's words. All this time, Lord, you continue to hold us in the palm of your hand. And you lovingly guide us and care for us. Heavenly Father, hide your word in our hearts. Lord, we read the words of your prophet Isaiah here. We want Isaiah's words written down deep inside of us because of you. We ask you to give us the lessons we must learn. We ask you to guide us 
in your perfect path. Lord, we look at your plan of redemption. And like people, we're always trying to smooth out your rock. Let us not do that. Lord Jesus, you died in our place to redeem us, to save us. Jesus, you are so amazing and we love you. We bless you and we honor you. And we praise your name above all names, the name of Jesus. Amen.